Hey, this is Dan Blewett, and welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 20, the big two zero. And what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to go over a handful of common misconceptions in pitching. Obviously, I work with young pitchers for a living, and uh, I'm just going to share some of my experiences, both playing and coaching, because there's just a lot of things out there that I think become, they become like almost like old wives tales where they don't really fit in reality but they've seemed to endure a a pretty long time so number one this is actually a kind of sort of a modern thing that i have an issue with that i see kind of out there on the internet this notion that we should track all of our bullpen so we should be charting our pitches in bullpens so that we can give uh, young pitchers feedback on how many strikes they throw, you know, their strike percentage, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, there's new technology out there that that will track this for you where you can kind of have sit there with a grid and, and go through it. But right now, I don't see that being super duper relevant. And this kind of goes back to in college, we had uh, string lines in our bullpen. So if you don't know what string lines are there, they usually put a uh, like a shoelace or just like a real thin string all the way across the bullpen. And they'll usually put it in like the bottom third of the strike zone. So from maybe like right above the kneecap to maybe a couple inches below the kneecap or you know they'll adjust it depending on what they're trying to get you to do but the goal for us in college was all of your pitches should be in the string lines so even if you're throwing strikes we don't care we want to make sure that you're throwing quality strike which are you know again within this bottom third of the strike zone or so and I understand the logic for that. Like I, I really do. It gives you a good visual as a as a young pitcher. You know, I was in college. That's I still think that's young. It gives you a good visual for it, and it gives you you know a little more broad task than just hitting your spot. But at the same time, as I got a little bit older, I started to get more and more frustrated with the string lines because my goal was to hit my catcher's mitt on every pitch. And that was the only thing I was focused on. And I didn't have the best command in college. I had pretty average command. And my, but my goal was still like when I'm practicing, my goal is to throw whatever I'm throwing, whether it's fast curve change, whatever, and literally hit the mid exactly. And if I'm not doing that, then that's giving me the feedback that I need. So like I missed over here, I missed down there. I don't care that it's in the string line still. I only care that I miss my spot. And so it became a little bit of a point of contention between me and my coach, because I'm like, look, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to throw out the string lines. Like I'm focused on one thing, which is my catcher's mitt, which is my target. So why is that there? That doesn't matter. You know, what matters is hitting the, hitting the mitt, hitting my spot. And I don't know that we really ever came to a compromise or, you know, good middle ground, but you know, I still think that the, the commonality between pitchers that throw a lot of strikes and have really good, good, good command, it isn't something mechanical. It really is just something mental, something deep in their focus where they're extremely, extremely focused on executing their pitch. You know, and I, I kind of experienced this in my my last couple years where my command went from okay to significantly better. I don't think I was ever a guy with, with true command. I think I was a guy with control. But when I became extremely consequence-oriented and task-oriented, meaning I have to throw this pitch here or X is going to happen, and if X keeps happening, I lose my job. Um, that really changed how I went about my business. And so for me, hitting the spot became even more of the focus where I have to hit the mid here or I miss over here. And that doesn't change anything. It just changes where your where your margin for error is and how you go about safely missing if you're going to miss. So, you know, when I would pitch inside of guys, I knew that it was almost like my bullseye was on the edge of the, of the dartboard, so to say, not in the middle. And that I was trying to hit there, but there was almost nothing that was going to let it go back over the middle of the plate. So my bullseye sort of, it wasn't centered. It was just on the edge. And if I hit my spot perfect, and if I don't, it'll be a ball, you know, into the hitter where he can't hurt me or even hits him with a pitch. I don't care. Um, 
And so as, as I go back to this idea of tracking all these bullpens, there's a couple issues that I have with it. Number one, I think it gives the wrong impression that our task is to throw strikes. The task is not to throw strikes. The task is to throw the ball where you want the ball to go. That's the only the only task. Um, throwing strikes as a byproduct is great. You know, like, again, I, I was a guy who had command or did not have command. I, I had control. And as soon as I uh, started to think that I had command, one of my buddies would always remind me like, no, you're, you're below average, especially like compared to like a big leaguer. I'm like, okay. But control is the ability just to like pretty much throw strikes on command. Like I can throw it in the strike zone when I need to. Um, and I hit my spot a certain percentage of the time. Command is I hit my spot a lot. And when I miss, my misses are pretty controlled misses. You know, those are guys in the majors who when they're going to one side of the plate or the other, they pretty much miss on that side of the plate only. Um, they hit their spot a higher percentage of the time. And I've heard it's only like 30% of the time that a major leaguer will hit his actual spot. Like the catcher's mitt won't move. And I'm not sure the exact tolerance of it um, and if that and that stat's accurate. But that was what I heard uh, maybe like a year or two ago. But so command is very different than control. Control is the ability to throw strikes, you know, not walk hitters, induce contact. Command is the ability to throw the ball where you want it, when you want it there. And those are very, very different. And almost no one has command. I mean, if you really are strict about your criteria, you know, only high-level guys are, are, are actually displaying command. But the, again, I think the way to develop command is by having an, a very strict set of, set of parameters for it. So if you're always happy that you threw 70% strikes in your bullpen, well, okay, was that helping you get better at actually locating, you know, your pitch, you know, and it's different than archery. It's different than all these other things like shooting or, you know, where they have a bullseye, they're always going for a target. Obviously when you're shooting an animal, if you're hunting, you still have a, a target and you can only miss so much before, I guess you don't get the kill or whatever. But in baseball, it's, it's extremely different because most of the time your catcher's mid is not going to be exactly where you want it. So catchers will move laterally, obviously in the strike zone, they set up late. So the higher level you get, the more the catcher will give you his sign. You both know where he's going to go, but he's not going to sit up there until you've already started your delivery. So you're really not going to get a great visual of it. So you have to have that visual impression in your head before he even gets out there. Um, a lot of pitchers take their eyes off the target. I was one of them. Um, I don't think that's ideal, but it's, it seems to be the way that the majority of pitchers operate and they sort of pick the target back up later. Um, and then the other thing is all these breaking pitches you're trying to start the pitch at a different location, somewhere kind of out in the ether that breaks back onto the catcher's mitt. So, and then, you know, with that, a lot of the times the catcher's, so if I'm going to bounce a curveball, for example, the catcher's not going to put his glove in the dirt. He's going to put his glove at the bottom of the mitt, you know, sort of in like the lateral location. So say I want to spike it in the middle of the plate. He's going to have his, his mitt at the bottom of the zone in the middle of the plate. So where I actually want to throw the ball is not where his catcher's mitt is. That's not the location. So I'm going to start it maybe at his mitt or a little bit above his mitt, knowing that when I add in my, you know, 16, 16 inches of break, it's going to bounce on the plate or the point of the plate or whatever. And, uh, and that's that. So I don't actually ever have a legitimate endpoint for me to like really target off of. Same thing goes with sliders, cutters, changeups, sinkers, you know, all that stuff. So you know, my slider is going to break eight inches at a diagonal. I have to start my slider if I wanted to hit the catcher's mitt eight inches of diagonal from his mitt. And so that's just like picking out some random spot on his, on his chest protector or maybe his, like his shoulder. Um, and then obviously even for fastballs, so say I'm going to go up and in on a guy, my catcher is going to set up in, but he's not going to usually set up up and in. You know, if we're going for like a strikeout, fastball up, he'll like kind of flash his glove like he's going to go up there. But by the time he does, 
you know, it's going to be a little bit later on the, again in my stretch and my delivery. And, uh, he's just really not going to get up there early enough to give me a good representation of that target. And so when we're, when we're practicing, you know, it's, and it's great to give little kids feedback, but at the same time, the biggest thing I think we can give to, to young pitchers is the understanding that your command is based on your focus and it's a mindset. And if you're happy just getting general results and like just throwing a strike and okay, well, that, that's not really like the, the high level mentality that we're trying to build. Not to mention there's so much variance. And if we're tracking, you know, percentage of strikes, so say a kid throws 60% of the strikes most of the time, we're trying to get him to 70%. Well, his, his, that's going to fluctuate a pretty good amount every single day. You know, if he makes a near miss of the strike zone five times, um, that could throw his percentage off, you know, 10%. So there's lots of little variations that aren't necessarily going to tell you whether your command is extremely good or extremely bad one day. You know, and this also goes back to the other thing. So how hard is your bullpen? So for me, in my last couple of seasons, I mean, well, really my whole career, I'm not practicing throwing fastballs down the middle of the plate in my bullpen, right? Like that's a given. That's just control kind of stuff. So when I'm having a bullpen, I'm setting up on the corners of the plate, probably splitting the black the most of the time because those are the harder locations to hit. And that's what I'm trying to, to do is get better at the hard stuff in a bullpen. So if I'm challenging myself like that, that leaves very little margin for error. So if I miss, you know, if he's set up a way to a righty, for example, you know, to my glove side as a right-hander, then I can't miss basically any amount off the plate and it still be a strike. So I can only miss on the plate, which is again, not my goal. So if I'm tracking strikes thrown in that bullpen, my goal is to miss off the plate if I don't hit my spot. So, you know, say I hit my spot 30% of the time, going back to that number, um, the rest of them, the other 70% of the time I'm missing off the plate, that's a good result because I'm practicing a pitch that's going to be only a specific like O2 sort of caliber pitch. And so, you know, all right, if we're tracking my bullpen and my strike percentage, okay, maybe my strike percentage that day is 40%. Did I get worse as a pitcher or did I actually get better because I was focusing on a really tight, small margin for error kind of spot with a very goal-oriented, you know, purpose? So depending on what the kid's doing, his, uh, his bullpen could vary tremendously on, on how much he hits his spots and how much, you know, what his strike percentage is. So then if we're talking about, okay, well, let's just track how often he hits his spots. Well, to me, this is going to be a pretty demoralizing number. I mean, even for me, say it's 30%, you know, I hit my spots 30% of the time, like, oh, hooray, is, is that good? You know, I throw a 30 pitch bullpen. So that means I hit my spot 10 times, you know, and if I, one day I hit it nine, then all right, I only hit it you know, um, 27% today. Oh, did I get worse? Like is 27% versus 30% statistically significant? It's one, it's one pitch, right? And that's the other thing. Bullpens are short. They're not supposed to be super duper long. You know, the general kind of accepted range is 30 to 60 pitches and the vast majority of them are going to be 30 to 40. So if I'm throwing 30 to 40 pitches, 10% is three to four pitches. So you know, if I'm just like a little bit tired or just a little bit unfocused, I throw three extra balls that takes my strike percentage down from 70% to 60%. So for me, it's kind of, we're looking at the wrong things. I mean, our goal, number one, is not just to have target practice where we're just trying to throw it and hit the dartboard. Our, our goal is always bullseye practice. And if we're not focusing that way, we're not going to develop that skill, that, that visualization and that mindset that I need to hit my spot. And if I don't, here's where it's going to go. And if I do, this is the result that I'm going to get as a pitcher. So I just don't think that 
when we kind of look at all of it, that tracking bullpens makes that much sense. I mean, I think kids need to understand that you're throwing a bullpen to get better, not just with your stuff. Really, you're just repeating your delivery and you're getting a feel for all your breaking stuff, your change-ups, your curveballs, and then we're just trying to execute pitches. And the other thing is we can also lose focus on on the other intangibles. So if you know a pitching coach isn't watching from behind, behind the catcher, he's not going to see the break, you know, the sharpness of a curveball or a slider. He's not going to see the deception and maybe the arm speed, you know, of a changeup. So if we're only looking at this number, oh, you threw 70% strikes today and you threw 70% strikes last time. Perfect. You're right on track. These are equally good bullpens. Well, what if you're or say you threw 60% strikes last weekend, but you threw 70% strikes this weekend. But the 60% last weekend, your curveball was way sharper. You were out in front of it. You just It was way crisper. And your changeup was better, but it tailed out of the zone more. Was last weekend's bullpen worse? You know, this week you throw more strikes, but your curveballs are kind of lazy. They're kind of rolly. They're not, they're not biting. So how are we quantifying that? Like, is it just as good? You know, do we want to throw more strikes with a crappier curveball? Or do we want to throw fewer strikes with a really sharp toothy breaking ball you know it's it's a it's a hard not very concrete kind of thing to to quantify so i just you know for me it seems like almost like a waste sometimes of modern technology where i'm just not interested in tracking bullpens but at the same time pitchers for a long time and this is kind of in his ought fallacy but for a long time have been throwing bullpens without anything tracking what they're doing and was that wrong i mean is it is there always a better way to do things I'm not sure. I mean, I think tracking is important. I think some of the new spin rate data is awesome. I think a lot of the data that the modus sleeve is gathering is awesome. But I think there's a lot of times we're just overstepping our bounds, even with just a simple string line, because we're sending the wrong message that failing at the goal is still okay, which it is in pitching. Like pitching is not an exact science. Hitting is not an exact science. You know, you hit a line drive right at a guy, you lose the game that way. And then you hit a, you hit a blooper to, you know, toss in the game winning run another day. So None of it's exact, but at the same time, the the big intangibles that I think make up command are your mindset, your visualization, and the way you go about your business, the way you practice, how focused you are on your task. And if you downloaded my my ebook from my website called What It Takes, my number one thing on there is really intense focus. Like every time you touch a ball, it should be with a, a very specific purpose. It should feel a certain way coming out of your hand. It has, should have a certain downhill angle out of your hand, a certain trajectory. All those things, we're always trying to figure out what is the best version of my fastball, changeup, cutter, slider, curveball, whatever, sinker. And then we're trying to feel that every single time we throw. And all the other stuff doesn't really matter so much if that's our goal. If And, and that's what all my teammates all my teammates were at the higher levels. They were all extremely focused in pregame, even when they're just playing a you know, flat round, just throwing 45, you know, 50, 60 miles an hour. All of them were extremely intent on finding their game slider at, at 50 miles per hour and, and catching it a certain way and just getting that high level feel. And that really was the was the commonality between everybody because everybody had something to offer as a pitcher or else they wouldn't be there. And it really, it just came back to this mindset and the way they, they handled themselves. And I don't know that tracking their bullpens would have had a whole lot of fruit to bear. Number two on my list for today is about pitching to the middle. So I get a lot of parents and kids complain sometimes about, you know, that their catcher sets up down the middle too much, that they want to be pitching to corners. And this also sort of goes back into college where I learned a lot about pitching myself. My coach had the philosophy that we would pitch down the middle because our command wasn't that good. So we, if we aimed down the middle, the ball wouldn't end up down the middle very much. And for me, I was also contentious about this because... 
I wanted to feel in control of my destiny. I didn't want to hit my spot and my spot be a bad spot. That's like, well, all right, so I'm aiming right here and I'm trying to hit my spot. That's like my goal as a pitcher. So if I hit my spot, this guy's going to drive into the gap. Like, is that, is that right? Like, that's what we want to do. But really, and maybe it just was the way it was explained, you take your chances with your margin for error, especially early in the count. And so I think that was really the message that he was trying to send, which maybe just didn't quite get through to me. But, you know, even in pro ball, pitchers don't go to the corners on the first pitch of the bat. I mean, if you watch catchers, they're not doing that. Um, and when parents complain and players complain that, oh, he needs to be throwing for corners, he's down the middle too much. Well, often it is that he's down the middle too much, but it's often because he can't hit his spots at all. And so trying to get him ahead in the count is the only way we're going to get him on track where he can then move the ball away from the plate and start to miss off the plate instead of down the middle. So really, it's just margin for error. So going down the middle, 0-0, you know, 1-0, 2-0, 3-0, 3-1 when you're behind, it gives you the most margin for error if you go back to that bullseye. You know, if your task was only to hit the bullseye, you have only the margin for error of that little one inch or two inch or whatever a bullseye is. You know, you can miss, you can hit the bullseye at the very top of the bullseye, the very bottom of the bullseye, or the very direct center. But if your task is to hit the dartboard in general, you would still aim for the bullseye because now you can miss, you know, 10 inches in all directions and still do the job that you need to do. So that's what aiming down the middle gives you, especially for young players. When they go down the middle early, it gives them margin for error. So they can miss and boom, they hit the corner. Great. They're ahead 01 because being ahead is super duper important. And it's, you know, and the caveat, so if you look at the, the negative potential consequences of throwing down the middle, especially on the first pitch, they are, there's a couple outcomes. You could be ball one, so you could just miss entirely. You could be strike one because you gave yourself a lot of margin for error. You could throw a very fat, hittable pitch that he then swings at, um, or you can end up throwing a very unhittable pitch that he swings at. So those are kind of the outcomes, you know, hitting your spot or missing your spot, whatever. But when hitters swing the bat, you know, batting average for balls in play when they hit the ball. So when they put the ball in play, we have a sort of a batting average for it. That's a stat is about 300. So when a hitter puts the ball in play, he's going to find his way on base three out of 10 times. So if a pitcher throws a first pitch strike right down the middle, most of the time, seven out of 10 times on average, the hitter's going to get himself out anyway. So now you have a one pitch out and a much greater chance of pitching deep into a game. Not to mention, most hitters in my experience are not ready to just drive and smash the ball on the first pitch. Some guys are pretty good at ambushing. It seems like it's a skill they develop later on in life. But in general, most of the time when I get burned on my first pitch, it's like a single. It's like, all right, I'll trade you one pitch, knowing that you'll be out two thirds of the time or more for the one time that you'll, you know, you'll single yourself on the first base on one pitch. Because now I can still three pitches later, get a ground ball and I wipe both you out with a double play. So for me, going down the middle just gives you great margin for error. It gives you a chance to get ahead. And then you can do a lot of the fun stuff that you want to do, which is throw an 0-1 slider on the corner of the plate, you know, all that stuff. But if you're 1-0... Now you probably have to come back with a fastball again, and now you don't want to get to 2-0, right? So now 1-0, you're probably going to go back down the middle of the plate. So then the question kind of becomes, would you rather aim down the middle? And again, not to say you're going to hit the, you know, hit your spot right down the middle, but would you rather aim down the middle 0-0 or 1-0? And for me, I'd always rather take my chances on the first pitch aiming down the middle because 
when a hitter's already got a ball on him and it's one and zero, he's going to be a lot more aggressive and ready to drive the ball in the gap versus on the first pitch where they're kind of just like just getting their feet wet, just getting comfortable. Maybe it's the first time they've seen you pitch all day. So it's hard for them to really know what they're going to get. So it's better to be aggressive, I think, on the first pitch. Because um, it goes back to the fact that if you're aiming for the corners first pitch, A, hitters take a lot of pitches. They take the first pitch probably more than any other. So you might make the world's greatest pitch on the first pitch, throw it right on the black, and it's called a strike. Great. Well, it's still just a one. It's no different in the, in the scorebooks as the pitch right down the middle. Um, and now you've got to repeat that. So, but if you miss because you have less margin for error, aim on the corner, now you fall behind and now that guy's got an advantage. And the other thing that throwing down the middle gives you is a lot more info on a pitcher. And I was explaining this to a 12 year old last night where say you throw a fastball on the outside corner of the plate and the hitter fouls it off late. You know, he swings and shoots it that way. What does that tell you about the hitter? Does it tell you that his bat speed is slow? Or does it tell you that the location was just such that there's no way he's going to pull that ball foul? So it, it doesn't tell you. It's kind of ambiguous. It doesn't as much explain the hitter's bat speed because when a pitcher's out on the outside corner of the plate, you know, you could be Mike Trout and have the world's, you know, a crazy, crazy bat speed. But that's probably the only place you're going to foul that ball off if you're not ready to drive it, you know, if you're not on time with it. So going outside corner first pitch isn't going to give you as much intel as to what the hitter can do. And so what I did my last three years in pro ball, I was extremely successful just challenging guys on the first pitch right down the middle because I had a little bit of deception. I had a good fastball and I had, I think, good spin on it. So when I'd throw it right down the middle on the first pitch and challenge a guy, they would often swing, which is great. I get a lot of first pitch outs. They'd often swing and miss, or they'd swing and foul it off late. So if they swung and missed, and I threw it by them on the first pitch down the middle, or I threw it down the middle and they swung and fouled it off late, it told me a lot about them. It told me that if they're going to be late when I'm down the middle, they're going to be absolutely screwed if I throw inside of them. So for me, it was just a, a matter of information gathering where if you're, again, if your bat speed is such that you can't catch up down the middle, I'm going to own you for the rest of this at bat. And it's going to be really, really easy. And now that I'm ahead of you, 0-1-1, I can throw to the inside third of the plate and you're going to probably swing at it because it's starting to get to that point where it's like too close to take stuff that looks like it's going to be on the way of the plate somewhere. So, you know, when you start to pitch inside a lot, you learn a lot of cause and effect. And one of the big causes and effects is that, I don't know if you can pluralize that, but one of the big cause and effect is when you pitch inside first pitch, usually the umpire won't call for a strike and the hitter won't bother to swing at it because they don't like swinging at stuff that's truly in. But when you get strikes on guys, they start to be forced. They start, you know, you, you force them to swing the bat and umpires start to get a little more lenient about calling inside corner pitches. So when I wanted to take my chances inside, I would much rather get a strike or two on a guy and then go inside. I'm more likely to have him help me out and foul one off and swing at it and nick it um, when it might not have been a called strike anyway. So for me, just getting ahead down the middle um, just paid off in a lot of different ways. It gave me you know, good intel on the hitters, and it gave me a good place to go when I figured out what they could and couldn't do. All right, so the next thing I'm going to cover is leadoff walks always score. So this is an old wives' tale. Obviously, no one really believes that they always score, but 
coaches get really fired up about leadoff walks because they seem to score more often. Like, you know, as soon as the pitcher walks the first hitter and then he comes around to score later, the coach is like, oh, see that? Leadoff walks, leadoff walks scoring. Well, yeah, it is bad to, to walk the leadoff hitter. It's bad to give up a leadoff hit. It's bad to give a leadoff hit by pitch, a leadoff um, error, a leadoff uh, catcher's interference. All those things are bad. So if you have read anything about run expectancy or like the run probability tables that they have with that they've created with major league baseball data we have pretty good you know insight into what's happening in any sort of base out state so a base out state is when you have second and third and one out that's the state of the bases two are occupied you know second and third are occupied first is unoccupied and we have two outs or whatever so base is empty no outs is a base out state so there's 24 of them and with all of them we have percentages from again from major league data that tells us how often on average runners score in those positions so if we're talking about leadoff walks or just leadoff base runners in general because there is no difference statistically between leadoff walks and leadoff base runners when you walk someone with no one out they score 42 percent of the time when you walk someone with one out and this is talking about like going from no one on base to only runner on first so you have a runner on first only with no outs they score 42 percent of the time runner on first with one out 27% of the time runner on first with two outs 13% of the time so almost one out of two situations in which you walk the leadoff hitter he'll come around to score but if you have one out one in four innings he'll come around to score and if you have two outs only about once every seven innings will he come around to score so pretty interesting and you know the fact of the matter is when you walk a guy or he gets on by a hit or you hit by a hit him by a pitch he's no more likely to score depending on how he reached base his qualities as a runner are immutable they don't change because you walked him he doesn't get faster he doesn't steal bases better he doesn't run the bases better because he walked um whether he's again hit hit by pitch now if you hit a guy in the kneecap uh with a pitch and he takes first he's probably a little less likely to score he probably can't hobble his way around the bases quite as fast but in general there's no difference between the percentage that walk score or base hit score or hit by pitches score catcher's interference score error score that doesn't matter it's only base runners so once they get on base they're just a base runner and it doesn't really matter how they got there but again 42 percent of the time if you walk the leadoff hitter he's going to come around to score and that's in major league baseball so for me as i go through kind of like a lot of the major league uh, sabermetrics data i think in youth baseball these numbers are much higher than they are in major league baseball so you know if you're 13 years old and you walk the leadoff hitter he's probably scoring 50 or 60 percent of the time and again i don't have data on that i'm working on that actually for next year with our warbird senators teams uh, hopefully we get a little bit of an understanding about some of these uh these averages for the different age levels we're going to start keeping some really good statistics but in general because fielders have much decreased range at the youth level uh double plays don't get turned nearly as often errors get made a significant more um, higher percentage of the time and just in general it's a sloppier level of play you know runners are going to score a lot more often not to mention stolen bases especially at the youth level are pretty rampant so when you get a guy on first with no outs especially like 12 u baseball 13 u baseball 14 u baseball i mean he's going to be on second with no outs pretty quick you know a majority of the time and when you have a runner on second with no outs he scores about 65 percent of the time so you know if we're talking about again runner on first no one out 40 percent he's going to be on second most of the time so he's scoring 60 percent of the time and then so many more bloopers fall in because infielders don't go back on the ball very well outfielders don't come in on the ball nearly as well you know like all these factors fielding is 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 poor because fields are bad 
Kids are just learning the game, obviously. Uh, their range is decreased. All this stuff, all these factors. So really, runners are going to come in to score a lot more often in uh, in amateur baseball. But you know, the whole idea that leadoff walks score. You know, they score the same as any other leadoff event where a runner reaches first base. Uh, we're going to talk about long toss. So there were a couple of research studies uh, in recent years, um, the most notable one by Dr. Glenn Fleissig at ASMI. And it was relatively clear that long toss at an extremely high angle. So when you're talking about like 30 degrees where you're pretty much bombing it out, not great for your elbow. You know, it definitely increases elbow stress, all that stuff. So the question now sort of becomes like a lot of parents still talk to me about long tossing. Like, yeah, you know, we're going to get my son out and we're going to long toss and try to build some arm strength and all this stuff. So, you know, is long toss good? Is it bad? Does it build arm strength? Does it not build arm strength? So I'm going to just talk a little bit about long toss because I was a big long tosser as a kid. And I'm a proponent of most things in moderation and long toss included. So in my heyday, you know, and again, I threw in the low, sometimes creeping into the mid nineties, but I could long toss. I did a demonstration a bunch of years ago where I threw on a football field and I threw, took a nice generous crow hop, but threw beneath one goal post on the football field and chucked a field goal in the other side. So I could throw it a little more than 360, between like 360 and 390, usually, you know, 375 or something like that at my, at my best. And that's getting a lot of air under it, you know, pretty much maxing it out. And I found a lot of benefits as I started to come back in. So I'd stretch it out, I'd come back in, which is called, um, the pull down phase. If you follow, uh, Alan Jager, Jager sports, you know, Alan's a great guy, big proponent of long toss, um, probably you know, obviously the biggest proponent of long toss in the industry, but coming back in after you sort of like really extend yourself and then pull down is it, it does seem to like help arm speed. It does seem to, uh, teach you to get on top of the ball and sort of compress that long distance throw into a shorter downhill angle kind of throw. Now, I don't have any data on that. I don't I don't think it really matters. Um, if it's something that you find value in, great. I think the research is pretty clear that when you bomb it out like that, it's, uh, it's more stressful on your elbow. So, you know, you can decide for yourself whether that's what you want to do. Um, but for me, as I got deeper into my career, I didn't long toss at a high angle very much. Really, I just started to get out as far as I could and I could throw a ball, a whole football field pretty much on a line. So really that's what I would just do as I got older. I would stretch it out where most of my throws were pretty much cuttable, maybe a little bit out of the cutoff man's reach. So if I'm throwing, you know, 80, 90, 100 yards, I'm throwing it as much on a line as I could and trying to make the ball almost rise off the ground. So I'm still getting the kind of the benefit of getting behind the ball, really getting good spin, really finishing through it and getting a lot of extension, all those sort of things. So long toss is a really vague term. For some guys, long toss is what Trevor Bauer wants to do before his games where he's just throwing it foul pole to foul pole. For other people, long toss is 200 feet. I think it's it's very individual and again, it's extremely vague. But at the same time, it also just comes back to what your, what your arm likes to do and what you like to do. And, and building a routine as a young player is extremely important. And so kind of experimenting with all of those different distances, you know, whether you're doing this before a game as a starter or just, you know, in your midweek as a side session, it's up to you. Obviously the research is clear about high angle long toss where you're really bombing it out, but you know, going farther back, I think it's a good activity where you get extension. You learn, again, you learn a lot of things. The number one thing I think I learned from long toss as a kid was how to use my backside. So I live in a colder climate now out here in the Midwest and I see a lot of kids who have kind of weak backsides where they don't know how to they don't know how to drive off their back leg. They don't have strong lateral hips. A little bit hard to describe over audio, but I think that long toss, when you throw it a little bit of an inclined angle, it, it starts to strengthen your hip. It starts to lengthen you out on your stride. 
and it teaches you how to have a good tall front side where you're getting a little bit of uphill angle with your shoulders. And that's something that a lot of young pitchers don't have is they end up falling down the mound with a downhill shoulder angle. And then when they're there, they can't use their front side. They can't use they can't use their their torso to extend towards the plate nearly as much. They end up just sort of sliding around the ball and being very rotational instead of getting a little bit of a mix where you're kind of a seesaw pulling with your front side to drive your chest forward and also rotating just the way your hips have to. So when you're throwing downhill on a mound, all big league pitchers, you watch them, they land when their stride foot lands their shoulders are pretty much level, maybe a slight amount uphill, but they're almost never downhill. And so considering that they're throwing on a downhill mound, they're resisting downhill angle, right? So they're just actually going a little bit uphill to counteract the downhill of the mound. So that's where long toss and just getting a little bit of uphill angle in your throws can have a big benefit because it's teaching you to resist flat ground by throwing uphill slightly, um, kind of in the same way that you would downhill. So for me, that was the, always the biggest benefit of long toss is I kind of looked back and reflected on something that I just kind of did as a kid naturally. Like I liked throwing guys out from the outfield. I liked stretching out with my dad. I liked taking fly balls from my buddy and I'd chuck them all the way back in. Like that was fun for me as a kid. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And when you get kids you know, excited about trying to throw it a little bit farther and to, you know, see if they can cruise the ball along the, you know, without hitting the ground a little bit farther, just trying to get that good carry that outfielders get. I think those are all good ways to build efficient mechanics and, you know, learn to follow through and have a good front side and use your backside. Well, all those things, because when you're trying to throw a long distance and hit a target, you have to be really, really accurate because the farther you are over a longer period of distance, um, you know, the more just being off by a little bit is going to get amplified because it's going to continue to go farther and farther and farther off top or off uh, target the longer it is in the air. So, you know, long toss has a lot of benefits just sort of helping to a kid sort of naturally kind of assemble himself into having decent mechanics. So, you know, whether long toss is for you or not for you, it's kind of up to you. But, you know, I think there's some benefits both ways. I think the research is relatively clear about higher angle long toss, but at the same time, you know, long toss means different things to different people. And I think it can definitely have a, you know, a place in a, a pitcher's regimen. My last topic that I want to cover today is, is there's a misconception about what the pitcher's job is. And actually what I tell a lot of young pitchers isn't actually my true feeling about the, uh, the, the concept. So what is a pitcher's job? And I think a lot of parents say that, you know, your job is not to get outs, which is mostly correct. Um, a lot of kids say that their job is to strike hitters out. They, a lot of kids say their job is to throw strikes. Um, a lot of kids say that their job is to win games. So I'm not sure anyone really knows for sure what a pitcher's job is because I think everyone appreciates that there is some amount of luck and probability and variance involved because you can't control what, what a hitter does. Once the ball leaves your hand, your transaction with it is over. And now it's a it's going to fly to the plate. The hitter's either going to swing or he's not. The umpire is going to call it a ball or a strike. You know the catcher is going to catch it or he's going to muff it. It's going to go to the backstop or it's not. Like all those things, you cannot control one bit. And so the pitcher seems kind of on the defensive after he lets his pitch go. So considering that a pitcher can't control anything after it leaves his hand, is it his job to get outs? You know, the cursory answer kind of say, well, no, his, his job is only to c control what he can control. But at the same time, 
where a pitcher is setting the stage for outs or for batted balls to be converted into outs. Obviously, a pitcher can strike hitters out. And, you know, to say that he's not in control of striking hitters out, I think is a little bit misguided because once the ball leaves my hand, you know, I'm choosing each pitch with an educated idea of what's going to happen on each pitch. I have an expected, um, an expected outcome on every pitch that I throw. So when I choose, you know, I'm 0-2 and I decide I'm going to go fastball at the letters, I'm going to go fastball up. I expect that if I execute my pitch, he's going to swing and he's going to miss and I'm going to get the strikeout that I'm looking for. But there's a lot of other outcomes that could happen that, again, I, I have no way of controlling, but there's a lot of different outcomes. So he could pop it up into fair territory. He could hit a home run. He could hit a double. He could hit a single. You know, he could pop it foul. Um, he could throw his bat into the crowd and hit my, my grandma. It doesn't, you know, there's a million things that, that could happen. But um, in, a, in a large sense, when I choose that pitch, I'm doing so to, because I expect a certain outcome. I'm going fastball up because I expect if I hit my spot, knowing that I throw a certain speed, he, he is a certain way, you know, his bat speed is this or his swing looks like this. And I've set him up in this certain way that if I throw a fastball up, I expect the outcome to be strikeout. And a large percent of the time, it'll match up. You know, if, if I elevate a fastball to 10 hitters on 0-2, I might strike out six of them. I don't know. Um, or I might strike out, strike out three of them. And so at three out of 10, I was right. And the outcome I expected was the actual outcome. So did I strike him out? Well, yeah. So I'm in control of that to a certain extent. Also, when I get weak contact, so I, I make a beautiful outside corner, low and away fastball. He puts it in play. I know, you know, the expected outcome of a fastball on the bottom of the kneecap on the corner of the plate is very weak contact, consistently weak contact. If I throw a pitch on the outside corner at the kneecap or at the bottom of the kneecap and, and a hitter swings at it a hundred times, I'm going to get an out probably 85% of the time because hitters just can't hit that pitch very well. You look at any person's heat map, even on the lower quadrant of the plate, the heat map starts to get very cold. You know, hitters don't drive that pitch well. So, you know, a certain percentage of them are going to swing and miss. A certain percentage of those hitters are going to take the pitch for a strike. Um, a certain percentage of them are going to hit it to right, to right field in the air. A higher percentage are going to hit it to right field on the ground. And a higher percentage still are going to roll over it and try to pull it and hit it to the shortstop or third baseman or back to the pitcher. So those are all sort of like possible outcomes on a, on a, a well-placed bottom of the kneecap outside corner fastball. Um, but if again, if 100 hitters put it in play... Again, you probably get 85% of them are going to hit a ball that's easily fielded by a fielder, you know, and then some are going to squeak through whatever, because that's just the luck and the probability involved in baseball. But in general, when I'm making a quality pitch like that, I'm controlling outcomes to a pretty high degree, knowing that I expect a lower exit velocity off the bat. And when I get a lower exit velocity, so in the big leagues, like anything, anything in the eighties, um, if you're averaging in the 80s, I think uh, most of those balls are fielded pretty well. But, you know, when a, when a hitter doesn't hit the ball as hard, the fielders get more range. You know, they can run farther before the ball's out of their range and they can field it and they can make the play. That's pretty obviously like the elementary view of, of fielding. So harder hit balls, fielders have to react quicker. They can't run as far. Obviously, it gets through the hole faster. So the whole game is how hard can I hit the ball? The harder a hitter hits the ball on average, the 
higher his batting average for balls in play is going to go up, the higher his batting average is going to go up. So for hitters, for pitchers, we're just trying to control exit velocity off the bat. And so when we throw to good locations, you know, the corners of the plate, down and down and away, up and in spots where hitters are going to have a tough time getting the barrel of the ball, they're going to have a tough time producing higher exit velocities. And so our fielders are going to have a much easier time running down those fly balls and ground balls. So the question still comes back to what is the pitcher's job? Is it his job to get outs? Well, to a large degree, yes. His job is to get outs by executing good pitches. And when he executes good pitches, he can expect to get more outs than a pitcher who does not execute good pitches. And the big problem with with young pitchers and with even older pitchers is they don't understand the luck and the probability involved. They get upset. They fold the pressure. They fold the consequences. They start getting nervous about the scout in the stands. They get nervous about what happens if this hitter hits one into the gap with the bases loaded. It's going to embarrass me. We're going to lose the game. My ERA is going to blow up, all that stuff. When you start thinking about those things as a pitcher, your performance becomes less fluid. You start to act with some hesitation, and your performance just degrades in a hurry. So the way to calm those guys down is to say, look, your job is not to get out. Your job is to execute this pitch only. Your job is to make this one pitch to the best of your ability. You choose the pitch. You choose the location. You don't worry about anything else except executing that pitch. And that's the way that I think most pitchers go about it. And that's a good way to do it. Now, we don't throw bullpens in a game, however. That's the thing. That's not exactly true, um, or the idea that your only job is to execute this pitch is true, and it's also not true. This isn't a bullpen. You don't throw a pitch in a vacuum. You're throwing it to a hitter. You're throwing it within a situation, and you're choosing it intelligently. So you might execute a pitch that's the wrong pitch that's obviously the wrong pitch, and that your teammates and your coaches might be like, dude, were you even thinking out there? Like, what are you doing? So to say that, oh, well, I just need to execute my pitch, well, you also need to think well enough to know if the pitch you're executing is the right pitch to execute. Um, and that's kind of convoluted, but there's a lot of just different contextual things that flow into this where I think the pitcher's job is not just to throw strikes. I don't think it's just to execute the one pitch. I don't think it's just to get deep into a game um, or any of those things. I think it's I think it's a combination of all of it where in many cases, a pitcher's job is to pick his team up. In many cases, a pitcher's job is to continue with the flow of momentum the way that it's going. Like, he has to be a leader. He has to be that quarterback for his team. Um, I think it's a pitcher's job sometimes to get a key strikeout when his fielders are struggling behind him or when he just has to have one. You know, you have to sometimes bear down and make the outcome yourself. You know, strike that guy out. Like, we can't always just rely on, oh, like, oh, I just, well, I just got a ground ball. Well, sometimes a ground ball doesn't cut it. And sometimes weak contact doesn't cut it. And the really good pitchers know when the difference is and when they have to really bear down and bury a couple sliders to get a strikeout. Um, and they control the tempo of the game. That's another thing. They have to continue to keep their hitters engaged. They have to um, continue on the offensive. So say you had a long inning against another, you know, you got four or five runs in a long inning against another team and you're chipping away. So you cut the lead down. And now you guys go back out to the field and your pitcher, his job is to be quick, get through that inning fast, get you guys back up to the plate while you're still hot and get their pitcher back on the mound while he's still reeling about his, his big inning. So 
There's a lot of things like that. So what the pitcher's job is, is it's not exactly clear. I don't exactly have a good answer, but it's sort of a confluence of all those factors. His job is to get outs because when you make good pitches, you're getting more outs than the guy who doesn't. So say that you don't have any control over what happens after the ball is put in play is it's true, but it's not true. You have control over the types of contact that you're creating. If you're always locating the ball well, or you're locating the ball better than the average pitcher, you're controlling outcomes to a high degree. You're getting more outs than that guy. And it's not just luck and probability that a guy like Clayton Kershaw consistently puts up more zeros and more ones and fewer crooked numbers on the scoreboard than other guys. You know, I mean, he consistently controls his outcomes and in a sense gets outs. Obviously, when you strike guys out, that's a true outcome. You know, and we have stats for this stuff, too. So if you look into SIERA, which is kind of a blend or FIP, you know, FIP, Fielding Independent Pitching, you know, fielding independent pitching assumes sort of a league average, batting average for balls in play. So it sort of just throws out the luck and the probability that's involved with the fact that hitters, you know, sometimes get lucky off a pitcher for a while and sometimes pitchers get pretty lucky off hitters for a while. So FIP just measures walks, hit by pitches, home runs, and strikeouts because those are the, the four true outcomes that a pitcher kind of can control. So he can control how many hitters he walks, you know, hits by a pitch, um, you know, home runs to a degree, and then strikeouts. So FIP will kind of normalize all the luck that you might have. So a guy might have a five ERA, but his FIP might have him at like four. So it just shows that, yeah, like, sorry, dude, you got unlucky with a lot of like ground balls that found holes and bloopers that fell in. Um, because really, when you compare everyone else to the league average amount of luck, your ERA would have been like a four rather than a five. So stuff like that helps um, major league teams and scouts figure out is a pitcher having a really good season, like a truly good season, or is he having a season that's a little bit fluky, like either he's getting lucky or he's getting unlucky, you know? And so it can go both ways and and help a pitcher um, out or sort of like, hey, man, like I know you think you're pitching pretty well but and you're feeling pretty good about yourself, but looks like you're getting a lot of luck in there. And uh, your fielders are just like getting a lot more balls hit right at them and getting a lot of, you know, double plays and stuff like this that, you know, your luck's going to change. So maybe we need to change something before your luck changes. It's kind of stuff like that. So um, it's not exactly clear what a, what a pitcher's job is because, again, there's so much luck involved. But, again, his job is to commit to his pitch, control the game, control the tempo, you know, be a bulldog, compete you know, rally his team to a victory when he can and in general control out, control outcomes and make good pitches that are more often than not going to result in good outcomes for his team. You know, it's a big milestone, the big uh, episode number 20. So I um, wanted to talk pitching a little bit and get some of these, um, some of these ideas off my mind and just chat a little bit about the, uh, you know, the advanced side of pitching and we'll see you back out here on Dear Baseball Gods for uh, episode 21.